Chapter Five, Part Two of the Prairie Traveller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prairie Traveller by Randolph B. Marcy. Chapter Five, Part Two. Fuel, making fires, fires on the prairies, jerking meat, making lariats, making caches, disposition of firearms, Colt's revolvers, gun accidents, trailing, Indian sagacity. Fuel and fire. There are long distances upon some of the routes to California, where no other fuel is found but the dried dung of the buffalo, called by the mountaineers chips, and by the French bois de vache, the argoule of the Tartary deserts. It burns well when perfectly dry, answers a good purpose for cooking, and some men even prefer it to wood. As it will not burn when wet, it is well, in a country where no other fuel can be had, when it threatens to rain, for the traveller to collect a supply before the rain sets in, and carry it in wagons to the camp when dry the chips are easily lighted a great savings in fuel may be had by digging a trench about two feet long by eight inches in width and depth the fires are made in the bottom of the trench and the cooking utensils placed upon the top where they receive all the heat this plan is especially recommended for windy weather and it is convenient at all times the wood should be cut short and split into small pieces it is highly important that the traveller should know the different methods that may be resorted to for kindling fires upon a march the most simple and most expeditious of these is by using the lucifer matches but unless they are kept in well-corked bottles they are liable to become wet and will then fail to ignite the most of those found in the shops easily imbibe dampness and are of but little use in the prairies those marked van duzer new york and put up in flat rectangular boxes are the best i have met with and were the only ones i saw which were not affected by the humid climate of mexico Wax lucifers are better than wooden, as they are impervious to moisture. I have seen an Indian start a fire with flint and steel after all others had failed to do it with matches. This was during a heavy rain when almost all available fuel had become wet. On such occasions dry fuel may generally be obtained under logs, rocks, or leaning trees. The inner bark of some dry trees, cedar for instance, is excellent to kindle a fire. The bark is rubbed in the hand until the fibers are made fine and loose, when it takes fire easily dry grass or leaves are also good after a sufficient quantity of small kindling fuel has been collected a moistened rag is rubbed with powder and a spark struck into it with a flint and steel which will ignite it this is then placed in the centre of the loose net of inflammable material and whirled around in the air until it bursts out into a flame when it is raining the blaze should be laid upon the driest spot that can be found a blanket held over it to keep off the water, and it is fed with very small bits of dry wood and shavings until it has gained sufficient strength to burn the larger damp wood. When no dry place can be found, the fire may be started in a kettle or frying pan, and afterwards transferred to the ground. Should there be no other means of starting a fire, it can always be made with a gun or pistol, by placing upon the ground a rag saturated with damp powder, and a little dry powder sprinkled over it, the gun or pistol is then uncharged placed within the cone directly over and near the rag and a cap exploded which will invariably ignite it another method is by placing about one-fourth of a charge of powder into a gun pushing a rag down loosely upon it and firing it out with the muzzle down near the ground which ignites the rag the most difficult of all methods of making a fire but one that is practised by some of the western indians is by friction between two pieces of wood i had often heard of this process but never gave credit to its practicability until i saw the experiment successfully tried it was done in the following manner two dried stalks of the mexican soap plant about three-fourths of an inch in diameter were selected and one of them was made flat on one side 
near the edge of this flat surface a very small indentation was made to receive the end of the other stick and a groove cut from this down the side the other stick is cut with a rounded end and placed upright upon the first one man then holds the horizontal piece upon the ground while another takes the vertical stick between the palms of his hand and turns it back and forth as rapidly as possible at the same time pressing forcibly down upon it the point of the upright stick wears away the indentation into a fine powder which runs off to the ground in the groove that has been cut after a time it begins to smoke and by continued friction it will at length take fire this is an operation that is difficult and requires practice but if a drill stick is used with a cord placed around the centre of the upright stick it can be turned much more rapidly than with the hands and the fire produced more readily the upright stick may be of any hard dry wood but the lower horizontal stick must be of a soft inflammable nature such as pine cottonwood or black walnut and it must be perfectly dry the indians work the sticks with the palms of their hands holding the lower piece between the feet but it is better to have a man hold the lower piece while another man works the drill bow inexperienced travellers are very liable in kindling fires at their camp to ignite the grass around them great caution should be taken to guard against the occurrence of such accidents as they might prove exceedingly disastrous we were very near having our entire train of wagons and supplies destroyed upon one occasion by the carelessness of one of our party in setting fire to the grass and it was only by the most strenuous and well-timed efforts of two hundred men in setting counter-fires and burning around the train that it was saved when the grass is dry it will take fire like powder and if thick and tall with a brisk wind the flames run like a racehorse sweeping everything before them a lighted match or the ashes from a cigar or pipe thrown carelessly into the dry grass sometimes sets it on fire but the greatest danger lies in kindling camp-fires to prevent accidents of this kind before kindling the fire a space should be cleared away sufficient to embrace the limits of the flame and all combustibles removed therefrom and while the fire is being made men should be stationed around with blankets ready to put it out if it takes the grass when a fire is approaching and escape from its track is impossible it may be repelled in the following manner the train and animals are parked compactly together then several men provided with blankets set fire to the grass on the lee side burning it away gradually from the train and extinguishing it on the side next to the train this can easily be done and the fire controlled with the blankets or with dry sand thrown upon it until an area large enough to give room for the train has been burned clear now the train moves on to this ground of safety and the fire passes by harmless jerking meat so pure is the atmosphere in the interior of our continent that fresh meat may be cured or jerked as it is termed in the language of the prairies by cutting it into strips about an inch thick and hanging it in the sun where in a few days it will dry so well that it may be packed in sacks and transported over long journeys without putrefying when there is not time to jerk the meat by the slow process described it may be done in a few hours by building an open framework of small sticks about two feet above the ground placing the strips of meat upon the top of it and keeping up a slow fire beneath which dries the meat rapidly the jerking process may be done upon the march without any loss of time by stretching lines from front to rear upon the outside of loaded wagons and suspending the meat upon them where it is allowed to remain until sufficiently cured to be packed away salt is never used in this process and it is not required as the meat if kept dry rarely putrefies if travellers have ample transportation it will be a wise precaution in passing through the buffalo range to lay in a supply of jerked meat for future exigencies lariats it frequently happens upon long journeys that the lariat ropes wear out or are lost and if there were no means of replacing them great inconvenience might result therefrom 
a very good substitute may be made by taking the green hide of a buffalo horse mule or ox stretching it upon the ground and pinning it down by the edges after it has been well stretched a circle is described with a piece of charcoal embracing as much of the skin as practicable and a strip about an inch wide cut from the outer edge of sufficient length to form the lariat the strip is then wrapped around between two trees or stakes drawn tight and left to dry after which it is subjected to the process of friction until it becomes pliable when it is ready for use this lariat answers well so long as it is kept dry but after it has been wet and dried again it becomes very hard and unyielding this however may be obviated by boiling it in oil or grease until thoroughly saturated after which it remains pliable the indians make very good lariat ropes of dressed buffalo or buckskins cut into narrow strips and braided these when oiled slip much more freely than the hemp or cotton ropes and are better for lassoing animals but they are not as suitable for picketing as those made of other material because the wolves will eat them and thus set free the animals to which they are attached caches it not unfrequently happens that travellers are compelled for want of transportation to abandon a portion of their luggage and if it is exposed to the keen scrutiny of the thieving savages who often follow the trail of a party and hunt over old camps for such things as may be left it will be likely to be appropriated by them such contingencies have given rise to a method of secreting articles called by the old french canadian voyageurs caching the proper places for making caches are in loose sandy soils where the earth is dry and easily excavated near the bank of a river is the most convenient for this purpose as the earth taken out can be thrown into the water leaving no trace behind when the spot has been chosen the turf is carefully cut and laid aside after which a hole is dug in the shape of an egg and of sufficient dimensions to contain the articles to be secreted and the earth as it is taken out thrown upon a cloth or blanket and carried to a stream or ravine where it can be disposed of being careful not to scatter any upon the ground near the cache the hole is then lined with bushes or dry grass the articles placed within covered with grass the hole filled up with earth and the sods carefully placed back in their original position and everything that would be likely to attract an indian's attention removed from the locality if an india rubber or gutta percha cloth is disposable it should be used to envelop the articles in the cache another plan of making a cache is to dig the hole inside a tent and occupy the tent for some days after the goods are deposited this effaces the marks of excavation the mountain traders were formerly in the habit of building fires over their caches but the indians have become so familiar with this practice that i think it is no longer safe another method of caching which is sometimes resorted to is to place the articles in the top of an evergreen tree such as the pine hemlock or spruce the thick boughs are so arranged around the packages that they cannot be seen from beneath and they are tied to a limb to prevent them from being blown out by the wind this will only answer for such articles as will not become injured by the weather caves or holes in the rocks that are protected from the rains are also secure deposits for caching goods but in every case care must be taken to obliterate all tracks or other indications of men having been near them these caches will be more secure when made at some distance from roads or trails and in places where indians would not be likely to pass to find a cache again the bearing and distance from the centre of it to some prominent object such as a mound rock or tree should be carefully determined and recorded so that any one on returning to the spot would have no difficulty in ascertaining its position disposition of firearms the mountaineers and trappers exercise a very wise precaution on laying down for the night by placing their arms and ammunitions by their sides where they can be seized at a moment's notice this rule is never departed from and they are therefore seldom liable to be surprised 
in parkins abyssinia i find the following remarks upon this subject when getting sleepy you return your rifle between your legs roll over and go to sleep some people may think this is a queer place for a rifle but on the contrary it is the position of all others where utility and comfort are most combined the butt rests on the arm and serves as a pillow for your head the muzzle points between the knees and the arms encircle the lock and breech so that you have a smooth pillow and are always prepared to start up armed at a moment's notice i have never made the experiment of sleeping in this way but i should imagine that a gunstock would make rather a hard pillow many of our experienced frontier officers prefer carrying their pistols in a belt at their sides to placing them in holsters attached to the saddles as in the former case they are always at hand when they are dismounted whereas by the other plan they become useless when a man is unhorsed unless he has time to remove them from the saddle which during the excitement of an action would seldom be the case notwithstanding colt's army and navy-sized revolvers have been in use for a long time in our army officers are by no means of one mind as to their relative merits for frontier service the navy pistol being more light and portable is more convenient for the belt but it is very questionable in my mind whether these qualities counterbalance the advantages derived from the greater weight of powder and lead that can be fired from the larger pistol and the consequent increased projectile force this point is illustrated by an incident which fell under my own observation in passing near the medicine bow butte during the spring of eighteen fifty eight i most unexpectedly encountered and fired at a full-grown grizzly bear but as my horse had become somewhat blown by a previous gallop his breathing so much disturbed my aim that i missed the animal at the short distance of about fifty yards and he ran off fearful if i stopped to reload my rifle the bear would make his escape i resolved to drive him back to the advanced guard of our escort which i could see approaching in the distance this i succeeded in doing when several mounted men armed with the navy revolvers set off in pursuit they approached within a few paces and discharged ten or twelve shots the most of which entered the animal but he still kept on and his progress did not seem materially impeded by the wounds after these men had exhausted their charges another man rode up armed with the army revolver and fired two shots which brought the stalwart beast to the ground upon skinning him and making an examination of the wounds it was discovered that none of the balls from the small pistols had after passing through his thick and tough hide penetrated deeper than about an inch into the flesh but that the two balls from the large pistol had gone into the vitals and killed him this test was to my mind a decisive one as to the relative efficiency of the two arms for frontier service and i resolved thenceforth to carry the larger size several different methods are practised in slinging and carrying firearms upon horseback the shoulder strap with a swivel to hook into a ring behind the guard with the muzzle resting downward in a leather cup attached by a strap to the same staple as the stirrup leather is a very handy method for cavalry soldiers to sling their carbines but the gun being reversed the jolting caused by the motion of the horse tends to move the charge and shake the powder out of the cone which renders it liable to burst the gun and to miss fire an invention of the namaquis in africa described by galton in his art of travel is as follows sew a bag of canvas leather or hide of such bigness as to admit the butt of the gun pretty freely the straps that support it buckle through a ring in the pommel and the thongs by which its slope is adjusted fasten round the girth below the exact adjustment may not be hit upon by an unpractised person for some little time but when they are once ascertained the straps need never be shifted the gun is perfectly safe and never comes below the armpit even in taking a drop leap it is pulled out in an instant by bringing the elbow in front of the gun and close to the side so as to throw the gun to the outside of the arm then lowering the arm the gun is caught up it is a bungling way to take out the gun while its barrel lies between the arm and the body 
Any sized gun can be carried in this fashion. It offers no obstacle to mounting or dismounting. It may be a convenient way of carrying the gun. I have never tried it. Of all methods I have used, I prefer for hunting a piece of leather about twelve inches by four, with a hole cut in each end. One of the ends is placed over the pommel of the saddle, and with a buckskin string made fast to it, where it remains a permanent fixture. When the rider is mounted, he places his gun across the strap upon the saddle, and carries the loose end forward over the pommel, the gun resting horizontally across his legs. It will now only be necessary to steady the gun with the hand. After a little practice, the rider will be able to control it with his knees. It will be found a very easy and convenient method of carrying it. When required for use, it is taken out in an instant by simply raising it with the hand, when the loose end of the strap comes off the pommel. The chief causes of accidents from the use of firearms arise from carelessness, and I have always observed that those persons who are most familiar with their use are invariably the most careful. Many accidents have happened from carrying guns with the cock down upon the cap. When in this position, a blow upon the cock, and sometimes the concussion produced by the falling of the gun, will explode the cap, and occasionally, when the cock catches a twig or in the clothes and lifts it from the cap, it will explode. With a gun at half-cock, there is but little danger of such accidents, for when the cock is drawn back, it either comes to the full cock and remains, or it returns to the half-cock, but it does not go down upon the cone. Another source of very many sad and fatal accidents resulting from the most stupid and culpable carelessness is in persons standing before the muzzles of guns and attempting to pull them out of wagons or to draw them through a fence or brush in the same position if the cock encounters an obstacle in its passage it will of course be drawn back and fall upon the cap these accidents are of frequent occurrence and the cause is well understood by all yet men continue to disregard it and their lives pay the penalty of their indiscretion it is a wise maxim which applies with especial force in campaigning on the prairies always look to your gun but never let your gun look at you. An equally important maxim might be added to this, never to point your gun at another, whether charged or uncharged, and never allow another to point his gun at you. Young men, before they become accustomed to the use of arms, are very apt to be careless, and a large percentage of gun accidents may be traced to this cause. That finished sportsman and wonderful shot, my friend Captain Martin Scott, than whom a more gallant soldier never fought a battle, was the most careful man with firearms I ever knew, and up to the time he received his death wound upon the bloody field of Molino del Rey, he never ceased his cautionary advice to young officers upon this subject. His extended experience and intimate acquaintance with the use of arms had fully impressed him with its importance, and no man ever lived whose opinions upon this subject should carry greater weight. As incomprehensible as it may appear to persons accustomed to the use of firearms, recruits are very prone, before they have been drilled at target practice with ball cartridges, to place the ball below the powder in the piece. Officers conducting detachments through the Indian country should therefore give their special attention to this, and require the recruits to tear the cartridge and pour all the powder into pieces before the ball is inserted. As accidents often occur in camp from the accidental discharge of firearms that have been capped, I would recommend that the arms be continually kept loaded in campaigning, but the caps not placed upon the cones until they are required for firing. This will cause but little delay in action, and will conduce much to security from accidents. When loaded firearms have been exposed for any considerable time to a moist atmosphere, they should be discharged, or the cartridges drawn, and the arms thoroughly cleaned, dried, and oiled. Too much attention cannot be given in keeping arms in perfect firing order. Trailing. I know of nothing in the woodsman's education of so much importance, or so difficult to acquire, as the art of trailing or tracking men and animals. 
to become an adept in this art requires the constant practice of years and with some men a lifetime does not suffice to learn it almost all the indians whom i have met with are proficient in this species of knowledge the faculty for acquiring which appears to be innate with them exigencies of woodland and prairie life stimulate the savage from childhood to develop faculties so important in the arts of war and of the chase i have seen very few white men who were good trailers and practice did not seem very materially to improve their faculties in this regard they have not the same acute perceptions for these things as the indian or the mexican it is not apprehended that this difficult branch of woodcraft can be taught from books as it pertains almost exclusively to the school of practice yet i will give some facts relating to the habits of the indians that will facilitate its acquirement a party of indians for example starting out upon a war excursion leave their families behind and never transport their lodges whereas when they move with their families they carry their lodges and other effects if therefore an indian trail is discovered with the marks of the lodge poles upon it it has certainly not been made by a war party but if the track do not show the trace of lodge poles it will be equally certain that a war or hunting party has passed that way and if it is not desired to come in conflict with them their direction may be avoided mustangs or wild horses when moving from place to place leave a trail which is sometimes difficult to distinguish from that made by a mounted party of indians especially if the mustangs do not stop to graze this may be determined by following upon the trail until some dung is found and if this should lie in a single pile it is a sure indication that a herd of mustangs has passed as they always stop to relieve themselves while a party of indians would keep their horses in motion and the ordure would be scattered along the road if the trail passed through woodland the mustangs will occasionally go under the limbs of trees too low to admit the passage of a man on horseback an indian on coming to a trail will generally tell at a glance its age by what particular tribe it was made the number of the party and many other things connected with it astounding to the uninitiated i remember upon one occasion as i was riding with the delaware upon the prairies we crossed the trail of a large party of indians travelling with lodges the tracks appeared to me quite fresh and i remarked to the indian that we must be near the party oh no said he the trail was made two days before in the morning at the same time pointing with his finger to where the sun would be at about eight o'clock then seeing that my curiosity was excited to know by what means he arrived at this conclusion he called my attention to the fact that there had been no dew for the last two nights but that on the previous morning it had been heavy he then pointed out to me some spears of grass that had been pressed down into the earth by the horse's hoofs upon which the sand still adhered having dried on thus clearly showing that the grass was wet when the tracks were made at another time as i was travelling with the same indian i discovered upon the ground what i took to be a bear track with a distinctly marked impression of the heel and all the toes i immediately called the indian's attention to it at the same time flattering myself that i had made quite an important discovery which had escaped his observation the fellow remarked with a smile oh no captain may be so he not bear track he then pointed with his gun-rod to some spears of grass that grew near the impression but i did not comprehend the mystery until he dismounted and explained to me that when the wind was blowing the spears of grass would be bent over towards the ground and the oscillating motion thereby produced would scoop out the loose sand into the shape i have described the truth of this explanation was apparent yet it occurred to me that its solution would have baffled the wits of most white men fresh tracks generally show moisture where the earth has been turned up but after a short exposure to the sun they become dry if the tracks be very recent the sand may sometimes where it is very loose and dry be seen running back into the tracks and by following them to a place where they cross water the earth will be wet for some distance after they leave it the droppings of the dung from animals are also good indications of the age of the trail 
it is well to remember whether there have been any rains within the few days as the age of a trail may sometimes be conjectured in this way it is very easy to tell whether tracks have been made before or after a rain as the water washes off all the sharp edges it is not a difficult matter to distinguish the tracks of american horses from those of indian horses as the latter are never shod moreover they are much smaller in trailing horses there will be no trouble while the ground is soft as the impressions they leave will then be deep and distinct but when they pass over hard or rocky ground it is sometimes a very slow and troublesome process to follow them where there is grass the trace can be seen for a considerable time as the grass will be trodden down and bent in the direction the party has moved should the grass have returned to its upright position the trail can often be distinguished by standing upon it and looking ahead for some distance in the direction it has been pursuing the grass that has been turned over will show a different shade of green from that all around it and this often marks a trail for a long time should all traces of the track be obliterated in certain localities it is customary with the indians to follow on in the direction it has been pursuing for a time and it is quite probable that in some place where the ground is more favorable it will show itself again should the trail not be recovered in this way they search for a place where the earth is soft and make a careful examination embracing the entire area where it is likely to run indians who find themselves pursued and wish to escape scatter as much as possible with an understanding that they are to meet again at some point in advance so that if the pursuing party follows any one of the tracks it will invariably lead to the place of rendezvous if for example the trail points in the direction of a mountain pass or toward any other place which affords the only passage through a particular section of country it would not be worth while to spend much time in hunting it as it would probably be regained at the pass as it is important in trailing indians to know at what gates they are travelling and as the appearance of the tracks of horses are not familiar to all i have in the following cut represented the prints made by the hoofs at the ordinary speed of the walk trot and gallop so that persons in following the trail of indians may form an idea as to the probability of overtaking them and regulate their movements accordingly in traversing a district of unknown country where there are no prominent landmarks and with the view of returning to the point of departure a pocket compass should always be carried and attached by a string to the buttonhole of the coat to prevent its being lost or mislaid and on starting out as well as frequently during the trip to take the bearing and examine the appearance of the country when facing towards the starting point as a landscape presents a very different aspect when viewing it from opposite directions there are few white men who can retrace their steps for any great distance unless they take the above precautions in passing over an unknown country for the first time but with the indians it is different the sense of locality seems to be innate with them and they do not require the aid of a magnetic needle to guide them upon a certain occasion when i had made a long march over an unexplored section and was returning upon an entirely different route without either road or trail a delaware by the name of black beaver who was in my party on arriving at a particular point suddenly halted and turning to me asked if i recognized the country before us seeing no familiar objects i replied in the negative he put the same question to the other white men of the party all of whom gave the same answers whereupon he smiled and in his quaint vernacular said injun he don't know nothing injun big fool white man mighty smart he no heap at the same time he pointed to a tree about two hundred yards from where we were then standing and informed us that our outward trail ran directly by the side of it which proved to be true another time as i was returning from the comanche country over a route many miles distant from the one i had travelled in going out one of my delaware hunters who had never visited the section before on arriving upon the crest of an eminence in the prairie pointed out to me a clump of trees in the distance remarking that our outward track would be found there 
i was not however disposed to credit his statement until we reached the locality and found the road passing the identical spot he had indicated this same indian would start from any place to which he had gone by a sinuous route through an unknown country and keep a direct bearing back to the place of departure and he assured me that he has never even during the most cloudy or foggy weather or in the darkest nights lost the points of compass there are very few white men who are endowed with these wonderful faculties and those few are only rendered proficient by matured experience i have known several men after they had become lost in the prairie to wander about for days without exercising the least judgment and finally exhibiting a state of mental aberration almost upon the verge of lunacy instead of reasoning upon their situation they exhaust themselves running ahead at their utmost speed without any regard to direction when a person is satisfied that he has lost his way he should stop and reflect upon the course he has been travelling the time that has elapsed since he left his camp and the probable distance that he is from it and if he is unable to retrace his steps he should keep as nearly in the direction of them as possible and if he has a compass this will be an easy matter but above all he should guard against following his own track around in a circle with the idea that he is in a beaten trace when he is travelling with a train of wagons which leaves a plain trail he can make the distance he has travelled from camp the radius of a circle in which to ride around and before the circle is described he will strike the trail if the person has no compass it is always well to make an observation and to remember the direction of the wind at the time of departure from camp and as this would not generally change during the day it would afford a means of keeping the points of the compass in the night ursa major the great bear is not only useful to find the north star but its position when the pointers will be vertical in the heavens may be estimated with sufficient accuracy to determine the north even when the north star cannot be seen in tropical latitudes the zodiacal stars such as orion and antares give the east and west bearing and the southern cross the north and south when polaris and the great bear cannot be seen it is said that the moss upon firs and other trees in europe gives a certain indication of the points of compass in a forest country the greatest amount accumulating upon the north side of the trees but i have often observed the trees in our own forests and have not been able to form any positive conclusions in this way End of chapter five part two